in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's back with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money. Wow, oh wow, oh wow, guys. Here we are. Welcome to season six. Thank you to our new listeners and hello to the deadbeats that have been around and about in the feed. 
Quick and obvious warning, nothing has gone as planned this season. As you can guess, and as with a lot of jobs, the unexpected is now the norm. But before we get into all that, let's get our new listeners up to speed. Cue music for a flashback. A few years ago, I started this gentle, sweet, innocent, harmless show to better understand my own finances so I could get out of debt. I asked questions like, what happens when you call your bank? And what is a stock? It was an idyllic time. Then this show evolved into something more. Now we look at the financial systems that divide us and our relationships with money and how that affects how we spend and how it can literally shape our lives. All kinds of very uplifting stuff. We became social justice warriors and mild socialists and then more hardcore socialists. A few months ago, we were wrapping up season five and we had an original idea for season six, which was how we endlessly chase money, how we try to buy the best version of ourselves by obsessing over things like lavish experiences to prove we have a great social life, buying the highest quality organic food, spending hundreds, if not thousands on products to get perfect skin. Enough was never enough. And I was excited, guys. I I was very excited. I had some very interesting interviews banked. I had all these episodes planned out. And then we all dropped into a global health crisis. Coronavirus came at us and it felt like everything I knew fell apart. For instance, I'm recording right now in my living room. Although, to be fair, we did record the first three seasons in my living room. But then I got to go into a studio and I got spoiled and now we're back in the living room. This isn't just a health crisis, it's an economic crisis. The economy nearly stopped. Self-quarantine is the new normal. The severity of what's happening has given me time to think and anxiously ruminate and pace and panic. So much panic, you guys. (laughs) A lot of panic. Were we dedicating our lives to chasing some imagined better version of ourselves that now is just like, why? Is that what was actually happening? Or was there something more meaningful that we were trying to afford that our original idea for the season only scratched the surface of? So in this episode, I want to dissect part of that idea. We're going to talk about success. What does being successful look like? What sacrifices were we willing to make to get there? So let's go back all the way back to... March 2020, so a lifetime ago. (laughs) We're going back to an interview I did before the crisis. A young, naive Gabby Dunn decided she wanted to talk to an intelligent person about the sacrifices we make in the pursuit of money and success. So my producer and I found an associate professor of philosophy who studied the sacrifices many of us feel we have to make for success or to quote-unquote move up an economic class. In this interview, we talked about the invisible costs of going away to college, especially if you're the first one in your family to do so, how the drive for success can complicate your relationships, how you can gradually feel like you're losing your identity, and my own motivators telling me that I need to work harder and harder and harder and harder to keep climbing up, whatever up means. Again, our conversation happened before the pandemic. Hello? Hey, is this Jennifer? Yeah, this is her. Hey, this is Gabby. 
So can you tell my audience uh, who you are and what you do? My name is Jennifer Morton. I am a professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Yeah, uh, your book is called Moving Up Without Losing Your Way. Um, so can you yes. describe what the what the book is about? Uh, sure. Um, so uh, the book is focused on the what I call the ethical cost of going to college as a way to uh, move up the socioeconomic ladder. So many low-income and uh, working-class students go to college as a way of having a better life than their parents and having access to career opportunities that will give them um, a good middle-class or upper-middle-class life. But what I think... um, ends up happening to many students is that they don't realize that uh, part of the cost they will have to pay for this opportunity is not just financial in the form of, you know, student loans or student debt, but also in terms of their relationships with their families, their friends, and the communities in which they grew up. Yeah. uh, In the description for your book that I read, it says it negates their sense of self, which um, it's super interesting because I think this episode is about buying success. And I think people assume mm. they can purchase uh, moving up a class by either attending college or by getting a job that's really uh, huge or well-paying, but they are paying a price as they move out of the economic class that their friends and family are in. Can you Can you define three qualities like about yourself that maybe you wouldn't compromise for any measure of success? And then I'm going to say what, what mine are. Oh, uh, great question. Uh, yeah. So I was also a first, uh, person in my family to go to college and I was raised by my working class grandmother. And one of the, uh, arguments I make is that sometimes it's hard to see, uh, what you won't compromise um, in at the moment, right? So when you're in college, there's all this pressure coming at you from different directions, and you might end up compromising on aspects of your identity without really realizing that that's what you're doing. And then later in life, you kind of look back and realize, oh, no, I, um, you know, I made some compromises that I'm not entirely happy with. Um, I think for me, um, my relationship with my uh, grandmother and um, my family back in Peru, where I grew up, is w- one aspect of my identity that I feel uh, very uh, is very important to me. Um, but I did feel like I ended up not completely sacrificing those relationships, but they definitely um, have been weakened somewhat by my moving up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think other aspects of my identity that I find really valuable now. Uh, have to do with uh, being a mentor and being a teacher that really thinks about the challenges that students face, in particular students that come from backgrounds uh, like mine or other working class students or students who are uh, not your, you know, kind of typical um, upper middle class student. And so a lot of my research is a way of uh, living up to that to that value, mm-hmm. um, and then I'm thinking of a third value. I I think the the friendships I've cultivated over the years, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it can be hard to maintain friendship when um, often in order to move up, you have to move around and uh, put a lot of energy and focus on your career. And it can become really easy to uh, stop investing in those relationships without even really thinking about it. Um, so it takes a concerted effort, I think, in in if you're the kind of person who's ambitious in terms of your career to maintain those relationships. And so I think that would be the first thing. What are oh, yours? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, that last one uh, <laughs> kind of hit home. Yeah, I. it was really hard for me to come up with some because I am so work-focused and so ambitious and driven and like work really mm-hmm. comes first. And also like my mom is super into me working more so than anything else. Uh, like I just asked her if she wanted me to give her grandkids and she said, I want you to give me an Emmy. So it's like that. Wow. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. So I uh, so it was tough. Like, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn my back on the queer community. I, I value my relationship with my sister, but also, like you said, I mean, my parents are, live in Florida and then I moved to Los Angeles and I don't really, I, I, I don't visit them that much because I, like, I'm busy here and I'm working and it's just like a totally different life. Whereas like, you know, I see some friends who move to live near their parents and they have a husband and kids and they move, they live near the, they moved back from wherever they were to live right near, you know, grandma and grandpa. Um, and right. I just will never do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of, as, as, you know, uh, your parents or my parents get older too, there is who does the caretaking, mm-hmm. right. And who's there to do a lot of the taking them to the hospital or be there if they have a health emergency. And I, and I definitely think that, um, by choosing to go away and, and, you know, to pursue kind of career opportunities in a way that I know that that's probably not going to be me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's difficult to, to kind of confront that trade-off that you end up making. I mean, I think also with families like this, there's uh, an expectation to, send money home. Like, have you found that when talking to people that there's this thing where they like set, I feel this way where you're like sent to succeed and then you are supposed to like give back to the family basically. Yeah. So one of the people I interviewed was this, uh, young, um, African-American guy who had grown up in, in a low income, um, mostly minority community and had been very successful, gone to college, uh, worked in the federal government. And um, for him, it was his relationship with his sister that became this really painful part of his life, in part because his sister didn't have a lot of money and she was always asking him to send her money. And Mm -hmm. he did send her money, but she thought it was never enough. And he has his own family and his, you know, obligations Mm -hmm. and so on. And so they would argue about money. um, And eventually he just started not calling her as much because it was always contentious when they talked on the phone, you know, and uh, over time, I think he felt a lot of regret, um, but also just sort of like, that's what he had to do. Um, And I call them strivers, you know, people that strive to move up and are successful. A lot of those conflicted feelings that strivers have, we don't have a lot of room in our 
discourse for that, mm-hmm. for the fact that you might have some ambivalence about what you had to give up. We often say, like, you made it, you succeeded, like, and, and focus on that instead of, of allowing room for people to just kind of sit with the ambivalence and maybe there were uh, sacrifices they made that, you know, maybe at the end it's worth it, but you can still feel uh, guilty or regretful um, about what you had to give up. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. And we're back. In what ways do people feel pressure to invest and spend money on bettering themselves uh, to meet this social standard? Like, can there be cultural sacrifices when someone tries to fit into the successful American stereotype? Yeah, I I think there definitely can be uh, cultural sacrifices. I think what ends up happening to many uh, people from minority backgrounds and from low-income backgrounds is that in order to succeed, you end up feeling like you have to try to not draw attention to your background and try to fit into the social world that you're entering and which opportunities reside. And so you end up, you know, maybe changing how you talk or how you dress. And those things are fairly superficial, but I think even changing how much value you place on family or on community might change as a, as a result of that. So I'm uh, Latina, and when I, you know, went through college and graduate school and stuff, I could see that, that the people around me valued work and, and professional success very, very highly and invested a lot of time in that. And I started to become more and more like that. Um, whereas I grew up in a family who thought of work as something you do to make money, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the time you're... Um, spending it with your family. And and I think once work becomes a really critical part of your identity and it starts to take over much of your time, um, it, it detracts from spending time with family and spending time outside of work. And that was definitely, for me, a cultural shift. Uh, it's definitely not the culture I grew up in. Yeah, because we're talking about success or making it, but for a lot of people, making it, May not, may not look like what you or I think it looks like, but the view is you put on a suit and you go into your hedge fund job and you have like a million dollar apartment. And you know what I mean? Like the view of success is, is so different to certain people. And I imagine people feel pressure to go towards that success and then like get there and realize that their actual version of success didn't look like that at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. I mean, you see it, uh, I think, all the time where people achieve a certain degree of professional success and find themselves uh, not entirely happy mm-hmm. uh, with what they've achieved. But I think this goes back to the to what we've been talking about, that you end up investing so much on pursuing um, professional success that you might not notice when you are not investing as much in other parts of our lives and make it meaningful and valuable. And so if your work ends up not being satisfying, you feel like you have little else to feel good about. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're investing in all of these areas of your life, then, you know, a professional failure or feeling not completely happy with your work is not going to be uh, devastating. Obviously, there are many people who go to jobs that they 
see as just means to an end, right? And mm-hmm. they uh, might be very happy with other areas of their lives and they don't see work in the same way. But there is something about, like, especially the college-educated, I think, professional class in this country that sees work as um, a kind of a critical part of your identity and something that you're supposed to invest in, mm-hmm. not just to get money, but really to 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 as a measure of your own personal success. Uh, oh, it's completely tied. Like my entire self-worth is tied to work. It was hard for me to think of, and this may sound like sociopathic maybe, but it was hard for me to think of stuff that I wouldn't sacrifice. Like I watch these movies and it's like, uh, you know, like the Devil Wears Prada where she's like, oh, I this you're right. Like I want to give up this internship and go back to my my boyfriend and my <laughs> old friends. And I'm like, you're a moron. Like you... <laughs> Like, Uh just finish the internship. Like, what is wrong with you? Once you finish the internship, you could have any job you want. Like, just suck it up. I think I'm very, like, tied to professional success and very much, like, this whole narrative of, like, money won't buy you happiness. I'm like, yeah, but it's it's probably better that I'm crying in, like, a nice apartment than if I'm crying and I'm I'm homeless. (laughs) Like... (laughs) <laughs> it's so weird yeah i mean we shouldn't definitely can't downplay the role that uh, uh professional success or financial success can play i do think that the sacrifices we make in those other areas of our lives are can be hard to make up for um so a helpful way of thinking about it is say student debt right like mm-hmm. it's horrible lots of people feel um stressed out by all the student debt they take on and how much college pays. Now, if you believe um, economists, right, for most college students, that debt will pay off in the long run. You'll make more money and be able to pay it back, though it might take many years than if you hadn't taken on that debt. Mm -hmm. But personal relationships don't kind of work that way, right? You can say like, okay, you know, to your sister, your good friend, I'm going to basically ignore our relationship for, I don't know, five, 10 years, and then I'll come back and hopefully be able to make up for it. Once I'm professionally successful, it just doesn't work that way. So uh, we can't really think of um, those relationships in the same way that we do money, which is something that um, I, I think we have a tendency to do, to think, well, you'll invest in this success now and put all of your energy into it, but later you'll reap the benefits. But, you know, if you later find that the people that you uh, sacrifice in the process are, are kind of not there anymore, mm-hmm. um, that can be quite a, a painful realization. Yeah. Uh, I was traveling for work and stuff and, uh, And my mom got unexpectedly sick and I like had this whole thing of like, oh my God, I have to move them out like to where I am and I have to, but like in a Mm -hmm. way where like I focus so much on work and stuff and then like get moving up in social class or whatever and I go, well, eventually I'll buy them a house and it'll all be worth it. But like I had the realization of like, well, if they drop dead and I'm not there, like what me buying them a house in five years means nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and and the thing is that sometimes the things that are most that are most valuable to 
you know, parents or friends are, are the kind of checking in when things are in dire, right? Mm-hmm. When you're spending time with them and it's not that they're at the end of their lives or something like that. But you just uh, go and visit them for no reason and spend a couple of days there. That, In a way, I think that's the kind of investment in our relationship that can really pay off. But it can be easy to overlook, right? And to not do that because everything else seems more urgent. Yeah. And it's not paying off like monetarily in any way. Right. Which is yeah. so capitalist. <laughs> we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So what are the the basic... Uh, like social cues or expectations that that you found that the strivers had gone through in terms of changing economic class and they were sort of like, oh, now I have to behave like this or dress like this or what kind of changed for them? Yeah, I, it really varies a lot depending on what people's backgrounds are. Um, one of the strivers I talked to had grown up in a pretty uh, bad situation. His mother uh, was addicted to drugs and he had a sibling that had a disability and they lived in a pretty impoverished community. And so what he told me was that for him going to college meant a complete transformation of the way he talked, how he interacted with people, what social norms he thought were acceptable, the way he dressed. I mean, just, you know, total transformation. Um, I think for some of the other strivers I talked to, uh, the changes were more uh, subtle and might have to do often with knowing how to conceal parts of your identity in certain contexts and when to reveal them, you know? Uh, Like what? um, I think it's just, you know, that there might be times in which you don't want to call attention to the fact that you have a different perspective on things because your background is different. Mm -hmm. Um, Because part of being uh, someone that people want to give opportunities to and that they see as a colleague is often feeling that sense of uh, commonality with them, right? Like, this is someone I can joke around with and say stuff to and whatever. And yeah, for people who come from other backgrounds, it can be hard to negotiate to, to... to what degree to kind of go along and try to get along with everybody and to what degree you you push back when there are things that are being said or, or yeah. ways that people are interacting that rub you the wrong way or that strike you as unethical or racist or sexist or whatever right. it is. Right. Um, so for people that are listening that felt that they sacrificed a lot of themselves for success, how do you recommend they redefine like or come to better understand their their values so they don't feel like they have to like keep doing that? I think that one important misconception that people have to um, give up on is thinking that there's such a thing as uh, having a job in which you give back and then having a job in which you're selling out. Oh, what do you mean? So I think some people think like, I decided to become a lawyer, I sold out, or I'm becoming becoming a teacher or something like that is kind of giving back, Mm -hmm. right? And so you kind of tend to group uh, into categories like that. But I think in any position you have in our society, if you have some success and some power, 
there are ways for you to use it to help others who might have been in similar positions to you coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just takes a little bit of reflection to see that. So, you know, even if you're a corporate lawyer, um, you can think about, like, who are you hiring? Mm -hmm. On what basis are you hiring, for example? Are you just looking for someone that came out of Yale and Harvard? Is that your only criteria? Like, you know from your experience growing up, say, working class, that those are not the only people that, you know, are smart and can do that kind of work. Like, maybe you rethink how you're thinking about hiring or... You rethink how you treat, you know, people in your office that have, quote unquote, uh, lower status within Mm -hmm. the hierarchy or or mentoring someone that's coming up that, you know, came from a working class background. So I think there are always ways when we look around us of kind of changing the social structures that are unjust and Mm -hmm. that might make it hard for working class and people of color and women to come up. Pay more taxes so we can, so everybody can have. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, support a candidate that, that supports increasing the safety net or uh, increasing funding to public higher education or whatever it is. But I think you, um, there are always those avenues. And I think what ends up happening is that some people feel guilty and then they go into a profession where they don't see it as a quote unquote helping profession. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, Oh, I just sold out. Like, I don't have to, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just a horrible person. Like keep going with my day. But actually I think in many professions you can uh, push the boundaries of your role to help, um, change these deeper social structures that make it hard for working class and people from other marginalized backgrounds to succeed. Um, but we just have to kind of be reflective and look around um, and and notice the things that we do that um, perpetuate the kind of injustice that, you know, we were subject to. And I, so I had to go through this process of thinking about my own teaching like when I started teaching, I was just like lecture and drone on, you know, yeah. I'm sure you've experienced them in college. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't realize how um, <clears throat> lecturing was a really bad way to teach. Mm-hmm. And the people that get the most out of classes like that are often people that have gone to good schools and have kind of the academic background where they can just basically learn on their own. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that I was leaving behind students that were kind of intimidated by college. Mm-hmm. And you have this person in front of you just talking at you and you're not sure what's going on and you're not understanding exactly what you're supposed to be doing there. You're going to find that person very intimidating. You might not ask questions. You might not go to office hours. And so I was just doing the thing that had been done to me without really thinking about it. And I was like, this is what you do as a college professor. Right. Um, not really thinking about the ways in which I was leaving some students behind by doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's only after I kind of did the research for the book and started thinking about this more deeply that I realized that in my own behavior, I was doing the kind of thing that made it harder for people like me to succeed in college. And so I really had to rethink my teaching in light of that. Um, so I think you can be very well-meaning and still perpetuate, you know, kind of social norms and structures that make it hard for people who are 
minorities or from working class backgrounds to succeed without even realizing that that's what you're doing. And that's why I think it's really important to reflect on your own behavior, in particular in the workplace, um, because we often get rewarded for keeping the status quo as it is. Right. Um, and just kind of going along with things as they are. And the people that kind of push those boundaries are often not uh, appreciated. And often you do have, there are moments, and if you're reflective, there are moments in your own life where somebody, you know, kind of went out of their way to spot your talent or to tell you about an opportunity or to do something that helps you along that path. But it's really easy not to see those moments or remember them when you're successful or have some measure of professional success. And it's much easier to think you did it all on your own. Um, but hardly anybody does. Can you buy success? Can you buy your way into being a successful person? Hmm. Um, I mean, this is kind of a lame answer, but I think it really depends on what you think success is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just to make the obvious point, but if you think success is making, I don't know, $10 million and you start off with $2 million and invest it wisely and get your $10 million, and in a way, yeah, you bought success. Uh, I think most of us, I think even the people who have $2 million still think of that as the only requirement for success. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often a lot more that we want from life than just to, uh, make money. And so I think many of the other things we want in life are helped by money, right? So, Hugely. um, you want to have, you know, I, uh, love my family and I want to spend time with my daughter and my husband, then it helps that I don't have to work three jobs to, mm-hmm. uh, be able to, pay for our lives. And that definitely helps and makes us so I can enjoy uh, spending time with my loved ones. But the money by itself um, wouldn't do it, right? I'd I'd, I'd have to kind of think about how to use those resources to tap into those values that I really care about. So I think it can be a necessary part, but it's not sufficient. And most of the research shows that above a certain level of income, it doesn't really make a difference to your happiness, whether you have more money. I don't know. It's something like the number changes, but I think it's something like $70,000 or something like that. Um, you know, that if you're making that much and you you don't have to worry about money, about mm-hmm. that kind of day-to-day, um, then having a lot more than that, you're probably just going to adjust. And, and that's, that's why um, all of these other factors that I think are harder to measure and harder sometimes to notice when we're not investing in them Mm -hmm. can be so important because they really do kind of give shape to our lives and give the emotional core to, to our identities. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Morton. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Her big takeaway at the end there didn't really stick with me at first. I think she was saying that money and success should only be a tool to invest in other more meaningful parts of your life, like your relationships. And I get that. But I don't think the message fully clicked at the time. 
Right after this interview, I literally told my producer there was nothing I wouldn't sacrifice for success. I still found it hard to think of success as just like a means to invest in other stuff, you know? I mean, obviously, I wanted to get money to be charitable. I've talked about on my other podcast how I would love to open up an LGBTQ center for youth or specifically homeless LGBTQ youth. Um, I want to be able to buy my parents a house. But a lot of that stuff to me was dependent on career success. And since then, I've had a lot of time to rethink things. We're now in a global pandemic and our economy has been completely devastated and millions of people have filed for unemployment, my sister included. Thanks to our government, we have no real answer as to when this ends and what our economy even looks like when it does. I have a hard time picturing it going back to normal. For a lot of us, it's been a serious wake-up call. I've been broke before, and the thought of being broke again is absolutely terrifying. I realize now that that meant that I was constantly worried about losing everything. And so I was always working and chasing success, but I think what I was actually chasing was control. Now, for a lot of people, we're seeing pretty starkly that money does give them a lot of control during this really scary time. You see them, you know, recording TikToks from their big mansions or hearing about people who have, you know, been able to escape to their home in the Hamptons or whatever. And I'm growing pretty resentful. In this dystopia, the rich can steal away to those vacation homes or they can buy access to tests and treatment. And the economic disparity is becoming starkly clear to everyone. If you want to know more about that, you should read Amanda Hess's piece about the death of the cult of celebrity. Because I'm sure you can see if you're on the internet, there's been a huge backlash against uh, people with money. And you know why that is? Because without work, the ladder of success that we Americans feel we could always climb is kicked out from under us. We can see just how far away successful people, quote unquote, really are. And by successful people, I mean rich or famous people. To me, that's what success was. Money can buy you the things that make you feel in control, like a place to sleep, food in the fridge, a better chance at keeping yourself safe. Now that we're in a global pandemic, I have the time to really sit with myself and realize how much those basic necessities actually mean. I'm still constantly worried, but now I worry more for other people than for myself. Just to be able to think like that means I'm a lot better off than I realized. So in just a little over a month, I went from feeling like I needed an Emmy to have any real value as a human to getting smacked in the head with the reality that my life is what success looks like. I always kind of knew that, but now I'm sitting in the safety of my living room and getting paid to record a podcast and write a TV show, though who knows if that'll ever get made. Will I see my parents or my partner in the next three or more months? I don't know. I mean, I, I worry about my parents constantly. I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about them. They're over 70 and live in Florida. Um, and people are still going out to the beaches. So please don't do that if you live in Florida. But I am incredibly lucky. So, so many people don't get the privilege of making money without needing to leave their homes right now. And I really needed to redefine the idea of success. 
I mean, success to me now is being able to have the time and flexible work schedule to talk to you all during this, that this is my job. And I think that's a healthier way of looking at success. Thanks for listening. We've got a whole season to talk, so let's use this time to do some good for ourselves. Let's think about how we're investing in bettering ourselves and why, and how we can use that to help other people. And be more empathetic. We could all always be more empathetic. I want to know how you've been doing. If you've got a totally fictional self-image in your head where you're richer, more fit, better looking, more responsible, more peaceful, happier, more charitable, maybe you're vegan, where you have more friends or go on more adventures, or like any adventures, we want to hear about it. Why do you need to be that person? How much time and money were you investing to get there? Does all of that even matter anymore? Have your priorities or strategies changed since the pandemic? Do you feel like you're trying to take control of something by becoming a better you? I would love to have any control. The idea of the things I can control has completely changed. Send your stories to gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com. Write them out or send us an audio message. Short, short, short. Less than one minute, please. Share this episode with a friend if this sounds like someone you know and then they can send us a message. If you enjoy hearing me talk about what money is doing to our brains and how we see ourselves, then also make sure you're subscribed to Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns. Our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I feel very optimistic saying I'll see you next week. (laughs) 